Well, thanks, Al. Well, can you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3? Chapter 3, we're in verses 10 through 17 this morning in our ongoing series in the book of 2 Timothy, Guard the Faith. All right. Well, today's title of our message, which comes from this text, is Where is Your Confidence, Christian? I'm eager to share with you this morning. I got a lot to say from his word, but I just think it'd be appropriate all the more with the content of this message that we would hear from the text first. So I'm giving you another moment to turn there and we're going to read it. And may God bless his word this morning. This is going to happen, you know. I use my Bible. I'm trying to, you know, convert to an iPad here, you know. And all these funny things always happen, you know. Things I've never seen before on my iPad until just now. And I have, I am totally lost. There we go. Bingo. All right. Starting verse ten of chapter three. Paul speaking to Pastor Timothy. God speaking to us today. Verse ten. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Well, Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the many here who have stood upon your word for years and years. And has trusted you. Lord, we come this morning with various expectations. Lord, that you would speak to us. For some, that those expectations are great this morning. For others, they may be waning. Oh, Father, we ask that you would increase our anticipation this morning as we unpack your word, as you speak to us. Lord, teach us to treasure your word this morning. And may it sink deeply into our hearts. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, question for you, church. How confident are you in your faith? In what you believe about God? About Christ Jesus? Because the reality is, at times, our faith can waver. Can it not? We can doubt. We can be shaken. We can begin to second guess ourselves, our convictions, 
even our judgments. Kind of like a driver who has been in a car accident. You know what it's like to get behind the wheel after you've been in a car accident. If you've been T-boned, what it's like the first time you get back in that car and cross that intersection. You're looking once, you're looking twice, maybe three times before you proceed. Or you know what it's like to be rear-ended, to get back in the car after that accident. You know the whiplash. You're looking in the rearview mirror, not once, not twice. You're driving a little more slowly, a little more cautiously. You're a little more skittish because of what you have gone through. Many of you have experienced that in one way or the other. When it comes to your faith, what slows you down? What causes you to be a little skittish? What throws you off? What causes you to doubt and to take a double take or a triple take? Is it suffering? The suffering you see around you? The suffering that you're enduring? The suffering of seemingly good and innocent people? Or maybe it's really smart people, like a lot smarter than you, that you know, but have a very different view about the Bible, about science, about Christ. And you talk to them, you just don't know how to answer their questions or statements. And you kind of feel blindsided. You don't know what to do. It throws you off. What shakes you? Maybe it's how you've been sinned against. Maybe even betrayed by a personal friend with whom you once shared fellowship. You look back at the relationship and what happened, and it was like a hit and run. You were a victim of a hit and run. You collided, and they took off, and you were left there alone. What shakes you? What causes you to doubt? I don't know if Pastor Timothy in our text today was having a crisis of faith. I don't know. But I can't help but wonder if he was just a little tempted, his confidence a little shaken. You see, Timothy, in his church in Ephesus, he was feeling the heat. He was suffering. There were some bad hombres who had identified or identified as Christians and yet were spreading false teaching in the church. And then what we learned last week was this, that their behavior was just as reprehensible as what they were teaching. And it was destructive. But as we read this today, what I find so instructive, church, is this. It's what Paul says to Timothy, knowing what he has gone through. How Paul addresses this young pastor. In fact, how Paul encourages Timothy. What's interesting is what he does not say. He doesn't say, Timothy, it'll be all right. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, Timothy, I got a few new things to teach you. Paul doesn't have anything new here. Rather, Paul tells Timothy what he already knew. He reminds Timothy of what he has learned and what he has firmly believed. And that leads us to really the summary, I think, of this passage. It's as follows. I'll put it on the screen. Timothy, Christian, Stick with what you know to be true. Number one, the godly examples that you have followed. Yeah, those who've gone before you, Timothy, and taught you the gospel. And number two, the scriptures which you have firmly believed. 
Let's take a look at those two points this morning. Number one, the godly examples you have followed. Let's go back to verse 10 of chapter 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness, and yes, my persecutions and sufferings. In this very first verse, Paul reminds Timothy of what Timothy knows. It says that Timothy followed Paul. That, that, that verb there is really, he's observed, he has studied, he knows. Paul, I mean, Timothy, you, you know me, man. You've, you've studied under me. You know me. You've observed my life and my way of life. And beginning with this phrase, he says, you, however. He's contrasting his teaching and conduct with those of the false teachers. And the contrast couldn't be more clear. And then Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you know all about this. You know my character. You know the example I've set. And you know, yes, the persecution and the sufferings which I have endured. And then Paul curiously refers back to his very first missionary journey. You see it there. He listed, in which I traveled to Antioch, Tyconium, to Lystra, What's Paul doing here? Why is he reminding Timothy of his first missionary journey? Presumably because Timothy was from the city of Lystra. We read in Acts 14, verse 19, what happened to Timothy's hometown of Lystra. We read this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Just think about that image for a moment. Dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. What kind of impression would that have left on a very young Timothy who was there, who lived in the hometown, hometown of Lystra? What would it have been like to have witnessed this event? What would it have been like to observe this bloody corpse-like body dragged through the streets? I don't know if Timothy saw that as a child. He may have. But I bet if he didn't see it, he heard about it. He heard the witnesses talk about it in the streets. He may have even discussed it with his mom or with his parents over supper at the dinner table. What kind of impression would this have made? You see, Paul wants Timothy to remember. Why? He says it plainly in verse 12. Look at it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice the contrast with the next verse, verse 13. It's not the false teachers. It's not the evil people. It's not the imposters who will be persecuted. No, it's the genuine Christians, Timothy. That's you and that's me. And that's all who follow Christ. Oh yes, the Lord did rescue Paul from death. But as we know, he did not rescue him from persecution. Why? Because Paul, as a follower of Christ, was called to suffer. It's the same for Timothy. And the same goes for you, O Christian. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, speaking of all genuine Christians, will be persecuted. Not maybe persecuted. You caught it. Will also be persecuted. In other words, there will be those who will come after you, who will harass you, who will want to mistreat you 
and even do harm to you. How does this encourage a young pastor like Timothy? I mean, (laughs) how, how does this encourage you this morning? I thought Paul's trying to encourage his protege. What's going on here? How could this reality encourage Timothy? Well, friends, just like Timothy, we are not to be dismayed by the hostility that we may encounter when we live out our faith. We are not to be dismayed as if something strange is happening to us, that we are actually being opposed for what we believe and the way we've chosen to live in following Christ. Persecution is not the exception. It is the norm for the Christian. You know, we in America may not, at least yet, suffer much physical harm for being a Christian, as many of our brothers and sisters do in so many parts of the world. I'll pray for them. But we do suffer, don't we? We we feel it. We, We feel the scorn, the ridicule, even perhaps the intolerance that those in our culture have for us. And maybe you have experienced discrimination because of what you believe, because you are a follower of Christ. And when this happens, it's so easy to think, why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with our church? What's wrong with my witness? And we can ask those questions, can't we? Friends, maybe nothing's wrong. Maybe nothing's wrong. In fact, maybe everything is actually quite right. Why? Because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Number of you know, who knows Cindy and I and our family, that our adoption of our youngest daughter has been a challenge. And we find ourselves often asking a lot of questions. Oftentimes, though, the wrong questions. Why is it so difficult? But it's not so much that, it's what's wrong with us? And our faith can be shaken at times, and our judgment even questioned. While we may not say outright that we are being persecuted, I think it's taken us several years to understand this. We're suffering. We're suffering for the choice that we made to adopt a child, a conscious choice to adopt a child as an expression of gospel grace to a hurting and orphan child. I share that not to conjure up illicit sympathy, okay? In fact, I, I hesitate sharing that. But I share it for this reason. What if, what if Cindy and I believe nothing was really wrong at all with our faith or our witness, but actually was quite right? To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.24, what if we were actually filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our daughter? In other words, what if we were actually suffering and believed it Suffering for Christ so that others might grasp this gospel truth of how much Christ loves us. That he's willing to die naked on a cross 
for you and me, orphans. What if our suffering, and what if your suffering was actually missional? Suffering was not just about identifying with Christ, but your suffering is a way we proclaim Christ as well. What if the verbal ridicule or even the slander you've endured from your unbelieving spouse or friend was not an indicator of something wrong with you, but something gone right? A witness for Christ gone right. What if the mocking that you receive at work, you know, the chatter in the lunchroom, the looks that you get, show not that you are weird, but you're a worshiper of the one true and living God. Friends, take courage. If you've experienced any of these feelings or thoughts or questions, you are not alone. Look to those who have fought the fight, who have kept the faith, And most of all, look to Jesus, the one who did not flinch in the face of unspeakable evil, but was nailed to a cross for you and me. Thus, Paul says in verse 14 of our text, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. In other words, Timothy, continue in what you've learned of my example and my way of life and what you firmly believed, knowing knowing from whom, from whom you learned it. In other words, Timothy, you know the gospel is true. You know it because of me. You know it because of your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, that we talked about in chapter one. You know our character. You know our example. You know that we even suffered to bring you the gospel. I know you know that. But Paul doesn't stop there. Notice verse 15 and following. Because here we find the source of Paul's teaching and the very source of his confidence. That which has trained him to withstand the pressures of life and ministry. That which will train Timothy and you and me for the work and the witness God has for you. And I start back up to verse 14 and work our way down. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Here's the conjunction. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is it that Timothy has firmly believed all these years? It's that which ought to be Timothy and every Christian's source of confidence. It's the Holy Scriptures. And that leads us to point two. The Scriptures which you have firmly believed. Notice in verse 15, the verbiage used, sacred writings. Or verse 16, Scripture. What is being referred to here? Well, for Timothy, when we hear the sacred writings, we hear Scripture but he's talking about the Old Testament, which Timothy would have had in his possession, or at least he would have heard that is preached. I believe it also portions of the New Testament that had been collected as well. Timothy, you know, you believed, you have and have heard that the Holy Scriptures. Yes. And for us today, church, that is all 66 books of the Bible 
the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And it's this scripture, to quote verse 15, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice scripture doesn't save us. Hear this, Christ does. But it's through scripture that God has revealed himself and it's through scripture God has revealed the way of salvation through Christ Jesus. And it's scripture is what the spirit uses to make us wise for salvation and to impart faith that we may believe in that which we have heard. I know we have youth here this morning looking at some of you who are here. I'm so glad you're here this morning. You're here listening. There are things happening right now that you may not understand for years to come. There's some big things happening. Things that you may not understand now. Maybe you don't care to understand. Maybe you really do want to understand, but you can't quite follow along. I get it. That there's things happening right now as God's word is preached to you. It's special. It's huge. Dare I say, it is epic. And what is being preached in God's word has the power to change and alter the course of your very life. I know because I've been where you're sitting right now. I've been there as a child. I still remember the day, 1973. Wow, I'm old. Sitting not in a black chair, but in a wooden pew in a little brick church. on a corner in Seattle, Washington, a neighborhood called Ballard. I remember sitting there as a young child and there was a preacher. I didn't know who he was up there, but he was speaking God's word and God rocked my world. He gave me understanding that what I was here was not just man's word, but God's word. I remember going home that afternoon and saying, mom, I need a savior. I need Christ. God had done something to the preaching of his word. His word was living and it was active and it had penetrated my young heart. Now my mom had told me the gospel, but I'd heard it again from this preacher. It was his word working in my life, using my mom and using this preacher and others. I got it. God's word was working. I don't know when I was saved exactly, but that was a pivotal day in my life where God broke through into my word world by using his word. You see, what you're hearing this morning, youth and adults alike and parents, aren't just ordinary words. My words are, but not the words we've read in scripture, all right? These are not words from a school textbook. These are not words from a news story or a famous novelist. These just aren't words that you find in your friend's text messages, okay? These words are different. These are words which belong to and have been sent to you by God. It's right here in verse 16 and 17. We have what's called the all-important doctrine of the divine inspiration of Scripture that we find right here in these two verses, 16 and 17. It's like Paul, it's like he comes up with a new word to express, to stretch his very vocabulary. He calls this word, these holy scriptures, God-breathed. This God-breathed word. It's like he's stretching his vocabulary and ours as well to express just how unique and different these words really are. They are breathed 
endowed by God. What is he saying? He's saying God is the author. Big A. He's the author. It originates with him. And as such, these words are authoritative. They carry weight. They're not like my words or your words. They're different. They're qualitatively different. They place a claim on our lives. They aren't just words to be considered. They're words to be obeyed. Yes, there there was a human author. There were many human authors who were used in writing the Bible. Author, little a, not big A. We've already established. Who's talking? It's Paul. He wrote this letter while he was in prison. Yes, Paul wrote it. God used men. He used their gifts. He used their grammar skills. He used their giftings. He used their personality. But what was recorded through the words they wrote were exactly what God intended to be recorded and preserved for us today. They are his words. They are God-breathed words for you and me. And since they are God's word, they are inerrant. It's a fancy word. What does that mean, inerrant? They are without error. There's no typos, okay? There's no funny autocorrect functions like you see when you send a text and it comes out all jarbled. What? I didn't say that. No, what God intended to be said was said exactly as he wanted it to be said. Because they're his words, all of them. Note that Paul says, all scripture all scripture is breathed out by God. Not some of scripture, but all of it. Every word and all 66 books of the Bible. False teachers excel at taking only a portion of scripture and saying it is inspired by God and then disregarding or throwing out the rest of scripture which does not support their view or which they disagree with. We see it a lot, church. Those who would say, God is merciful and kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Is he? Absolutely. I believe that. I think we can all say, yes, that's inspired. But how about other statements the Bible makes as well? That God, excuse me, Christ, suffered the wrath of God on the cross. That Christ actually did rise from the dead and Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Oh yeah, God's loving and merciful and kind. That's inspired. But that stuff, that wrath of God stuff, no, can't be, wouldn't be. Church, we can't do that. We talked about that the last couple weeks. All scripture means all. It really does. You will find people who either claim that scripture in part or in whole is not inspired, or you'll find those who will reinterpret what it means when we say the word of God is inspired. Even within the church, there have always been those who have tried to reconcile the prevailing scientific theories of their day, evolution, to what they read in the Bible. And this is what can happen. Oh, I believe that the spiritual truths of scripture are inspired. You know, God is love, that's certainly inspired. But the scientific data or the historical data is not inspired. It is prone to error, the error of men. We have now divided the inspiration of scripture between spiritual 
and historical or scientific. One is inspired, but the others are not. Yes, God is love. That's inspired. But the creation account, not really. The fact that there was actually a worldwide flood, not really. Church, we cannot do that. It is not an option. It is unbiblical. And it's also a slippery slope, which will eventually lead to the rejection of all of the inspiration of scripture in total. History bears this out time and time again. Church, we need not be ashamed. Every bit of God's word is true and it will be proven to be true as well. But not only are God's word inerrant without error, they're also infallible, another big word as well. What does that mean that they are infallible? It means that they will not fail. They will not fail to accomplish the purpose for which God has sent his word. Why do you think Paul, excuse me, God, had Paul write down and express it this way, that scripture is God-breathed? I don't know all the reasons why, but I have a few ideas. Number one, I think God meant to bring us back to his creative life-giving work at the very beginning of time in Genesis. What happened in Genesis? God spoke and it became. What happened when God spoke? Light happened. Planets happened. Trees happened. Fish happened. You happened. God created the world through his spoken word. How about the prophet Ezekiel? You may have heard of him. You've heard of the Valley of Dry Bones? Ezekiel 37. What did God tell Ezekiel to say to the spiritually dead, corpse-like people? Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 37, verses 4 and 5. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Do you catch the imagery there? God breathes out his word so that we can breathe it in and live and be renewed day by day. God's word is breath. God's word is life. God's word renews. God's word is like oxygen to our souls. Have you experienced that? I believe a lot of you have. You're here. I mean, your heart is stirred. It's animated. You come in tired on a Sunday morning. We've all been there, done that. But you walk out differently. You walk out of these doors and there's there's life, there's faith, there's energy, there's confidence, there's conviction. Because God, because of his work through Christ and his spirit, he's giving you life, he's using his word. Yes, hopefully to save. And yes, also to sanctify See, church, God's word gets things done. Exactly what he wants done because these words are from him. What do these words do? Now, left to our imagination, Paul reminds Timothy and thus us how God's word functions. Look back at verse 16 and 17. Four important words. What does God's word do? Oh, it teaches. God's word tells us the truth. God knows we need to hear the truth, don't we? We need to hear it again. And we need to hear it again. And we need to hear it again. But God's word is also for reproof. What does that mean? 
God's word actually exposes our heart. God's word actually exposes our wrong thinking. If you're like me, my thinking gets off track quite easily and quite often. I need the reproof of God's word. But God's word not only teaches us and reproves or at times rebukes us. He doesn't leave us there. No, God's word is also good for correction. It corrects us. It corrects our mistakes. It corrects our faulty thinking. And lastly, training. God's word trains us. Trains us to live, to live God's ways. To live in his way. All of this God does with his scriptures. And Paul is reminding Timothy that these scriptures, oh, they're sufficient. They're sufficient to address the false teachers in his midst. But they're also sufficient for you, Timothy, for all life and godliness. Why? So that the man of God may be equipped, may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work that you may be equipped for every good work which God through Christ has prepared for you, O Christian, that's before the foundation of this earth to walk in. Yeah, those good works. He is using his word to equip you, to walk in the ways for which he created you, for which he saved you in the first place. That's what God's word does. And that's his purpose as well. Do you feel like you need more teaching? Maybe you feel like you need more training in the Christian life. Many of us do. You know, Al and I do our best to provide such context. Certainly, Sunday is one of them, and you're here. I'm so grateful you are. We have Bible 45 in the morning, which you can grapple and learn more of God's word. We have Sunday morning services, this sermon right here. We even have the men's Bible study once a month in community group. But here's the reality. At best, those are only two days of the week. What do you do with the other five? There's seven days in a week. See where I'm going? You have the word of God. You possess these God-breathed words. And these words are available to you, to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, and to train you that you may walk in the way that you should go. The reality is, you are equipped with God's word. So if you feel ill-equipped for the battle this morning, for the battle that you're fighting, it's a real battle. Let me tell you, you aren't. God has given you his word. You don't have to go to a synagogue to hear it as Timothy did. They didn't have personal copies back then. He had to go to the synagogue to hear the word, right? But you don't just need to come here on Sunday to hear the word. You got it. You have it. Oh, church, that is grace to you and me. I'm so glad. We have it each and every day to help us that we may walk in his ways. You don't need to be looking for something new, new teaching. You have what you need. It's sufficient. It's right there in the word of God. By God's grace, you and I have been given God's word. And you've also been given the testimony of those who have gone before you, who have stood upon God's word. Church, let us take full advantage of this grace. Full advantage. Let's stick with us. Stick with it. Let's take courage in the darkest days, in the most difficult challenges, even when persecution comes. Amen? Let's pray. Let the worship team to come on up.
Let's sing how from a foundation, guys, if we can. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, that you have preserved your word over the centuries. I thank you for the scholars who have interpreted those manuscripts in Greek, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, that we can understand your word in English or our native tongue this morning. Thank you for those who have gone before us who have suffered greatly, who have been burned to death on a stake. Lord, that we might have your word in our language today. Lord, we stand upon the shoulders of those who have gone before us, who have suffered, who have been persecuted, that we might worship you this morning. Lord, we stand on the shoulders of our parents, of our grandparents, of friends who have risked much, who have sacrificed much to give us this word this morning. Lord, may we not presume, may we not assume, but may we come to you with grateful hearts. May we avail ourselves of this means of grace you've given us, and may you grow us, that we may walk in the work that you have prepared. Yes, a walk that's filled with tribulation, at times persecution. But may we be faithful, may we be steadfast, and may we say one day to those who go after us, like Paul said to Timothy, follow me, follow me. Amen. Church, you may stand. Let's sing.